And of course, you might then say to me, well, Peter, we have stripped out cash out of this company by way of a loan. And so you're telling me now, but just because we've done that, we have a problem? Yes, you do have a problem. But just like most problems, there's often a fix if it is an inadvertent result of a commercial transaction. And so we'll talk about those fixes. Those fixes would be open to you, as we'll see a little bit later on, under each of the three models that we talked about, that are the trigger models for the vision template. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 149 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you have a Division 7A issue, how do you fix it? There are five ways to fix a Division 7A issue and five exclusions. So in total, there are 10 ways to get out of jail, so to speak. This is a rerun of certain parts of the interview with Peter Adams in episode 50 to rejig your memory about the five fixes and five exclusions to a Division 7A problem. So we've identified now the instances where Division 7A can give rise to problems. How do we fix this? How do we fix this problem where we have a low now either under Model 1 direct loan or an indirect loan under Model 2 or Model 3. How do we fix it? Division 7A, quick fix number one. Well, the easiest way to fix it, easiest way, is just pay the money back. Okay. Before the due date? Absolutely. So originally, before 2004, you had to actually pay it back by the end of the financial year in which the loan was made, so 32. Now, that became logistically very difficult. And the legislation was amended with effect from 2004 onwards to say that now you only need to repay the loan by the due date for lodgement of the company's return, which typically, if you have a 30 June 18 loan, You would only have to repay that by May 2019. So there's a bit more concessional time frame there for you to actually repay that loan. And if you repay that loan, it won't be an unfranked deemed dividend for 30 June 18 in the tax return of that shareholder or associate, as the case may be. So then the thought comes into my mind to say, well, if I take out the loan for the year ending 30 June 18, And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'll take it $100,000. And all I have to do is pay it back by May 2019. So I still have use of that cash without any sanctioning effect, as long as I pay it back by May 2019. Come May 2019, I pay it back. But then I take out another $100,000 loan. And I keep rolling this thing every year. Never, ever Division 7A problem. Is that right? It is partially right, because there is a integrity provision within Division 7A, Section 109R, that says this. If you take out a loan, Division 7A loan, 
and you repay that loan. But subsequent to that, you take out a same or similar loan. Then there's capacity for the commissioner to disregard your repayment of the original loan. But they will not disregard it in this way if your repayment of the original loan is through funds that you acquire as an actual dividend or where you've used salary and wages to repay the original loan. So there is this integrity provision that stops this rolling effect or strategy that people would otherwise be able to employ. Okay. I see. So if you take out a bank loan for three days yes. to be able to pay back, pay out the bank again. And then you take out another loan. Yes. Then Division 7A could apply. Could, could apply. apply. Yes. But if it's a genuine repayment from profits that the company Correct. makes. Yes. Yeah. And you see the logic in this because yeah. they're saying if it's an actual dividend that you're using to repay, that would be taxable anyway mm -hmm. in your hands. Or if it's salary and wages that you're using to repay the, the loan, that would be taxable anyway. So there's no real leakage to the fiscus, is the logic. It is still, though, if it is still, though, in theory, capable of being done where you had repaid the original loan using those two streams of revenue to then subsequently take out another loan. So you do have that flow of cash into your hands without any negative income uh, outcome as a result. But it's just, it's, I normally make this point just to make people conscious of the fact that even the UO have this repayment capacity by due date for lodgement of the return, it doesn't necessarily mean you have an open right to just keep rolling this over time and never have a Division 7A trigger because there is this integrity bit within the heart of Division 7A. So easiest way, pay it back. Division 7A, quick fix number two. I can't pay it back because the cash is gone. So how else do I fix this? Because I know this is a genuine Division 7A commercial loan. In other words, I'm not stripping up profits. This loan is subjected to a commercial interest rate and it would be on the same terms if I didn't take the loan from the company, but I took out the loan from an unrelated third party. And so Division 7A recognises this. It says if it's a genuine commercial loan, then we won't treat that loan as an unfranked dividend. But there are some requirements. And the first requirement is that you need to encapsulate the loan in a written loan agreement. And that needs to be in place also by due date for lodgement of the return. And you need to subject the loan under the current legislative framework, to a maximum term of seven years if the loan is unsecured or 25 years for secured loans against real property. And I think this requirement to be in writing is actually very generous because I think yes. it says that it can be a clause in the Constitution or it can just be in an email or it can just be in a letter. Yeah, so that's quite generous, I think. It is generous in that it needs to have its framework governed by the constitution but of course you need to have a separate notification because there's separate loans every year so you can't just say well there's that clause so you need to also have a separate element to the governing clause in the constitution to be able to do that but it's just about there being some evidence 
of a loan in place. That's really what what the focus is on. And of course, in addition to the written loan requirement and the term requirement of the loan, there's also that it must have ascribed to it a benchmark interest rate, which the ATO sets every year. For 30 June 17, 5.3%, now 2018, 5.25%. It's a moving target every year. But the benchmark interest rate would be, I guess, the key indicator that it is on commercial terms. And not only do you need to frame your loan in this way, you need to make actual minimum repayments on that loan for the term of the loan based on the prevailing benchmark interest rate every year. And there's a formula under Section 109N of the Division 7A framework that tells you how to work out that minimum repayment based on the prevailing interest rate. And of course, the formula throws up that part of the repayment comprises principal and part of the repayment comprises interest. And it's on this basis that you are able to demonstrate that it's a genuine commercial loan. One of the other things to tease out about this aspect of Division 7A, let's say we've got a written loan agreement in place, benchmark interest rate has been applied. I've now made my minimum repayments for three years of the first seven years, seven years maximum term. In year four, my minimum repayment of $100,000 is not made. What happens then? Now, in the past also, Division 7A used to be more penalizing. It used to say, that if you fall short in not making your minimum repayment for a particular year over the seven-year period, then the entire outstanding balance of the loan would be your unfranked deemed dividend. And of course, yeah, it's also now a little bit more concessional than it had been in the past. So now the only sanctioning effect is that that minimum repayment, which you haven't made, is an unfranked deemed dividend, absolutely. And it doesn't. you don't necessarily get a win out of this because some people would operate under the mistaken belief that if my $100,000 that I haven't made as a minimum repayment now translates as an unfranked dividend, then it reduces the balance of my loan. No, it doesn't. You can't get a win out of doing the wrong thing. So you still have the same balance, but you have an unfranked deemed dividend. So um, it doesn't give you a free ride for not doing the right thing. It doesn't work like that. But it is one of the ways in which we can manage our Division 7A risk if we can't repay the full loan by the due date for lodgement of the company's return relevant to the year in which the loan was made. We can set the loan on commercial terms, and that's typically what most accountants would suggest is what they do and what they suggest their clients do to minimise their Division 7A risk. In fact, negate their Division 7A risk as long as they continue to make the required minimum repayments over the term of that loan. And that's typically the the main exclusion that we utilise in the marketplace other than actual repayment of the loan. When the minimum repayment is not made, Mm. before 2006, the entire loan 
became a deemed dividend. Correct. Then in 2006, it was changed Correct. to a lot more lenient approach. Only the shortfall is made Absolutely. a dividend. Absolutely. Did that happen because there was a public outcry? Not necessarily. I don't think so. I don't, if I think back to that time, there was always a belief that Division 7A is this weapon of mass destruction in a tax sense. And so there was always this belief that even though it has this real penalty effect, there's a reason for it. There's a reason why it exists. And there was almost a reluctant acceptance in the marketplace by professionals and taxpayers to say, well, we understand why it's there. And so even though you had some elements of objection to the extent of the penalty effect, for example, why should a company be penalised with a franking debit in its franking account when you already have a sanctioning effect on the shareholder? Now, we know that had changed. So there was little, but not necessarily about this aspect. It was more about the fact that there were some definitional frameworks issue around, is a UPE actually a loan? How can you call it a loan? That's more where there were elements of objection. I think there were question marks around not understanding that maybe the entire balance represents an unfranked dividend. I don't think there was a huge area of objection to say this is grossly unfair. I think there was more of an acceptance as well. This is just the nature of the beast of Division 7A and this is how it applies. It applies unfairly, but it's trying to sanction something uh, where someone is in breach of the law. When it came out, it was viewed as concessional, not as an expected or an expectation or as an entitlement. This is really how it should work. Uh, it was genuinely viewed as a concession. And it is, I think, well, from where we came from, to that extent it is. And I think if you think about it equitably in an equity sense, you might have an instance where the taxpayer is a position to make those minimum repayments, but if this was a genuine commercial loan, people go through difficult times, they make their repayments on their bank loans, etc. then they go through a difficult patch. And there would normally be within the financial sector an understanding normally with banking operations where someone had been a diligent repayer of a loan and something happens in a particular year where they may not be able to fully meet their obligations there's often some element of compromise there. And I think this is where Division 7A came to the party, to recognise that, that we've already said this is a genuine commercial loan in the way you've structured it, you've diligently made your minimum repayments, but there's one particular year where you've fallen short. So all we're going to do is to say where you've fallen short, that will translate into an unfrank deemed dividend. If you kick on again from the next year, well, normal service resumes. Okay. So I think that's the right outcome. Division 7A, quick fix number three. The other side of the equation, which is actually quite an important bit of how Division 7A operates, because then I say to myself, okay, I haven't made a loan agreement. I haven't paid it back. So that technically means if I take out a $100,000 loan that I haven't fixed, that the unfranked deemed dividend will be 100000 that I have to disclose in my tax return. And let's just talk about a direct loan to a shareholder. First point is where do I put in my tax return? Because a lot of accountants don't even deal with this side of things because they normally fix it. 
So you don't get this result. But if I do get this result, where does it go? Well, it actually goes into the normal dividend section of the individual tax return. Because there's no deemed dividend section. So it goes into the normal dividend section. It just doesn't have any franking credits ascribed to it. But it sits under item 11 of the individual tax return. That's where it goes. So then I say to myself, well, okay, I've got a $100,000 loan. What amount do I put in this unfranked deemed dividend? Now, normally, logically, I'd say I won't put in 100000 as unfranked deemed dividend because that's the amount of the loan. But Division 7A doesn't quite work like that. And this is based on the normal operation of our tax law. If we think about the normal operation of our tax law and dividends in particular, is the fact that it's a dividend, is it that fact that makes it taxable? And the answer to that is no. A dividend is not in itself taxable. A dividend is taxable if the dividend is paid out of profits. So the definition of dividend in our law says it's any payment to a shareholder except an amount, except an amount. So there's two trigger sections here. There's the definitional section of what a dividend is. Then you have section 44, subsection 1, which says a dividend is only taxable if it's made out of profits. But then you say, well, what's a dividend first? Well, a dividend is any payment to a shareholder except a payment that's a return of capital. And so if it is a dividend, the next step is to say, well, if it is a dividend, is it a taxable dividend? Well, it's taxable if it comes out of profits. So we know that link exists. So Division 7A tries to follow that same dynamic. It says, well, you've stripped out cash out of the company. We have no right to treat the cash as a deemed dividend unless it's actually come out of profits. So it applies the same dynamic. But this is where it diverges from the norm. It says not that we won't treat it as a taxable dividend if it's not out of profits, but it doesn't use profits as a base at all. It uses a concept called distributable surplus. And distributable surplus is essentially a balance sheet concept. It has as its main component net assets of the company on balance sheet. And then it has some variables within it because it says you need to take off previous non-commercial loans, Division 7A loans that's sitting there on the balance sheet, non-commercial loans, the paid-up amounts of those loans you take off. The only other thing you take off that might be of note, typically, is paid-up share value. So it's actually your net assets less your paid-up share value. That's your distributable surplus. Now, if it's balance sheet, and I'm saying to myself, when I go and do these numbers, I've got a $100,000 loan here. But when I go to the balance sheet of that company for 30 June, I actually have a distributable surplus based on net assets minus paid up share value of 50000 So what does that mean? Well, I've got a $100,000 debit loan to the shareholder of that company. We haven't fixed the loan. We haven't paid it back. So it's now going to be an unfranked deemed dividend. But the unfranked deemed dividend can never be more than the company's distributable surplus. And in my case... The company's distributable surplus is only $50,000. So I've got $100,000 of cash flowing out as a loan to the shareholder, 
but he only puts in or has to put in only an unfranked dividend equal to the distributal surplus, which is only 50000 What happens to the other 50000 then? Because he's got $100,000 worth of cash in his pocket. No tax on the other 50000 Ever. Ever. And that's the important bit. Ever. The distributal surplus out is an absolute out. It doesn't matter that the next year your distributal surplus is $5 million. All that matters is what is the distributal surplus in the year the loan is made. And so this is a strategy point for accountants. As of the 30th of June in which the loan is made. So if I'm sitting there as an accountant, very often accountants will tell you they've picked up the Division 7A problem from the balance sheet already and they fixed it. And so all they did to fix it was to run around doing loan agreements. And they made minimum repayments on this 100000 that they now need to make the minimum repayments on. But I bet you if I put this proposition to my client and I say to my client, listen, we've got two options to fix this $100,000 loan problem in the context of Division 7A. We can do a loan agreement for $100,000. You then have to make minimum repayments on that plus the required interest for the next seven years. That's your one option. Second option. Distributable surplus is only 50000 So you put 50000 in your tax return for this year and you never have to worry about this thing again. You just have to pay the tax on the 50000 but the other 50000 you get tax-free. Now, I would bet most clients in that situation would suggest maybe the second option is the preferred option. So this is something that the ATO had tried to revisit and there were some murmurings within Treasury to perhaps bring this back to a profit concept, as is the case with a normal dividend, and take it away from this balance sheet distributable surplus concept. That has never happened, and it's still there as a basis for quantifying the actual deemed dividend that comes out of the making of the debit loan out of the private company to the shareholder. And so what I often say to accountants that I talk to is before we go around trying to put in loan agreements in place, see how low we can bring this number down because that might be a better outcome than having to do a loan agreement making minimum loan repayments for seven years. So it's one of those strategies that we are getting a little bit more tuned to exploring more before we just go around doing loan agreements. Division 7A, quick fix number four. You might say, well, Peter, you've been talking about loans to shareholders and you've also been talking about interposed entity structures where the cash ends up in the hands of the shareholder. What if I don't make the loan to the shareholder? What if I make the loan to a spouse of the shareholder? Does the Vision 7A attack that? Well, the short answer is yes, of course it does. The scope of application for Division 7A is that it applies to both shareholders and associates of shareholders. Now, there's a very interesting dynamic here in how Division 7A works in this context because we know that the sanctioning effect of Division 7A, if there's a loan to a shareholder, then that loan will be treated as an unfranked dividend. 
Now, you can fix that, and we'll talk about how we fix that, but this is the end outcome of Division 7A if you don't fix it. But what if the loan is to the associate and we have an unfranked dividend? Where do we pick that unfranked dividend up? Do we pick it up in the hands of the shareholder or do we pick it up in the hands of the associate? Now, you would be forgiven to suggest that that loan that's now an unfranked dividend would be picked up in the hands of the shareholder because you think logically you can only have dividends to shareholders. But this is not how Division 7A works. Division 7A actually picks up the loan as an unfranked dividend in the hands of the recipient of that loan, even if that recipient be the associate of the shareholder, not the shareholder himself or herself. So it picks it up in the hands of the associate. So then you say, well, how can that be? Well, remember, Division 7A is not a real dividend, the dividend that emanates. It's a fictional deemed dividend. So it can make something like this happen. So when you do have a result like an unfranked deemed dividend, you have to pick it up in the return, the tax return of the associate, okay, under the dividend section of being an unfranked dividend. That can throw up some planning opportunities because the shareholder might be on a very high level of income with a high marginal rate. But if you strip out cash out of that company, not in the hands of the shareholder, but in the hands of the associate, who might well be a non-working spouse. And you might pull out, let's say, a $20,000 loan of cash out of the private company to that associate. Well, the resulting effect might well be that you have an unfranked deemed dividend, but there's no tax to pay as a result of the tax profile of that associate. So this is an interesting dynamic in terms of how Division 7A works. Yeah, but so it can actually work to the advantage of the tax. It could, depending on the profile of the parties involved. Mm -hmm. Yes, it could actually work out. And some people say, well, if I specifically plan for this to happen, could they say it's a tax avoidance scheme now? Well, that would be very hard for the ATO to argue, I would suggest, because Division 7A is the anti-avoidance regime. So I'm saying in the context of Division 7A, I have breached Division 7A. So therefore, what's the consequence? What's my penalty? Well, you have to put that loan amount as the unfranked dividend in your tax return and bear tax on it. Well, okay, I will do that. I'll put the $20,000 in my tax return. But just so it turns out that there's no tax liability ascribed to it at the end of the day. So it could have that effect. Division 7A, quick fix number five. One of the things that we should also recognise as um, as an, well, not an out, but something where we can avail ourselves of a commissioner's discretion to perhaps resist a deemed dividend outcome. And this is where something had happened inadvertently. It was just a an honest mistake, if you will. Typically, what the ATO accepts as a basis for availing yourself is instances where we have these interposed entities. Typical to the example we said earlier, well, we didn't know that it went from there to there. If we had known that, we would have fixed it then. 
So we didn't have a loan agreement in place, but if we had known, we would have had a loan agreement in place then. Can you, Mr. Commissioner, this is the basis of our question, can you, Mr. Commissioner, allow us to do a loan agreement now, even though we should have had one three years ago? We will work out what is the minimum repayments we should have paid for the past three years, pay that to the company, and continue to make the normal minimum repayments for the balance of the term. That's the basis of our question to the commissioner. And I think there's, to date, anecdotally, I think there's probably a well above 80% success rate on this. It's a private ruling type of process that you have to follow. But because it's a concession and a discretionary authority afforded under the law, if you are able to make the representation that it's an inadvertent error or omission, then they will, because it's a form of voluntary disclosure and you're making good on what you should have done. So it's not like you're getting a free ride. It's not an amnesty of sorts. So therefore, it is readily accepted by the ATO if you satisfy the requirements that it is an inadvertent admission or omission, sorry, or honest mistake. We should recognise that we do have this capacity under law because very often accountants come to me and they say to me, Peter, we've got this new client and they've got debit loans everywhere. And the previous accountant didn't do loan agreements, didn't do any of that. All is not lost. We can sort of, through this channel, achieve some sort of remedy for, for that client. And I think one can apply for two different discretions from the commissioner. Yes. One is to still allow a loan agreement, even though we are past the, um, the lodgement date. And the other one, I think, is to treat it as a deemed dividend, but, but to make it a frankable dividend. That's a little bit different. That normally applies if it's actually a dividend or if there's a payment trigger for a dividend, not in the case of loans. So the only way we get an out in the case of loans is to say, well, we didn't follow the formalities. It's a genuine commercial loan, but we didn't follow the formalities. Can you give us the permission now to put it in place the way it should have been put in place because of our omission that was inadvertent? And so that's what you can get out of it. Or you can alternatively say it was genuinely booked as a dividend, it was a dividend, and it should have been treated as a dividend. That's a little bit harder to get over the line. But under under the second trigger point for Division 7A, which is payments, there is a capacity to have the dividend as a frankable dividend. And I'll talk about that. It's a very specific instance um, where you can have that as an outcome because the sanctioning effect of Division 7A, if you trigger it, is that it's absolutely an unfranked dividend. Otherwise, there's no penalty effect. Exclusion number one. So just a few additional exclusions that exist under the Division Framework, Division 7A Framework, for loans as to when a loan would not necessarily translate as an unfranked deemed dividend. A specific exclusion within the scope of Division 7A is company-to-company loans. So a loan from one company to another company would not trigger a Division 7A deemed dividend. Unless we have Model 2. Absolutely, or unless the loan, exactly right, comes from that second company to a shell of the first company, and which is why we can't stop the inquiry when we see on the balance sheet company-to-company loans. We need to ask where does the cash end up. Exclusion number two. 
And the second exclusion, and this is more of a non-duplication exclusion, it says if a loan is already assessable income under another provision of the Income Tax Act, then it can't be assessable income as a deemed dividend under Division 7A. So it's really more of a a non-duplication section. Exclusion number three. The next one, um, which doesn't come up very often, but there is elements of being able to use it, particularly in a planning sense. And what it's basically saying is, if a loan is made in the ordinary course of business and it's made on the same terms to a shareholder of that company or an associated person, that that loan would not translate into an unfranked deemed dividend if it's basically on the same arm's length terms as this company is making to its own customers. So really what we're looking at here is a company that fits this profile. The company is a finance house, a financier, and so it makes loans as a normal course of its business to its clientele. If it makes a loan of the same type under the same terms, arm's length terms, to a shareholder and associate, then that loan won't be an unfranked dividend. And there's logic there. But you could have this scenario. You're right, because Division 7A is only only for private companies. But but, um, the other aspect of it where it could have relevance, we see a lot of family groups, companies with family groups. You might have three operating companies, entities. And then you have one company that's the financier company of the group. So what that financing company does in the context of this corporate group, it's the one that finances the operations of the other companies. So really, that is the normal cause of its business. Do you see where we're going here? So that's where it can have relevance in terms of this exclusion. Exclusion number four. The other element that's a specific exclusion is a loan made in the course of winding up by a liquidator of the company. So if the liquidator has cash in that company as he's winding it up and he passes some of that cash as a loan to a shareholder, it's viewed as a loan made by the liquidator, not the company, which takes it outside the scope of Division 7A because Division 7A only focuses on the company loans. So that's also an exclusion. That makes sense. Exclusion number five. Another exclusion is loans made by the company under an employee share scheme to employees that as a result are shareholders of the company. So this is obviously a common type of structure as well or arrangement uh, where the shareholders acquire shares in a company, but the company advances the funds to the employee to buy the shares in the company. So that would also be excluded. So that's some additional exclusions to the, the normal exclusion which we utilise in practice, which is the written loan agreement. But those exclusions are also absolute exclusions. So if you fall into any one of those, it won't ever translate into an unfair deemed dividend. Welcome back. So there are 10 ways to get out of a Division 7A problem. You pay it back or you set up a Section 109N loan document with minimum repayments and interest each year so you make it a genuine commercial loan. Or 
you find ways to reduce the distributable surplus. Or number four, you make the Division 7A loan to a low tax associate. Include the linked dividend in the assessable income, but don't really suffer much pain because they still stay in low tax brackets. Or as your fifth option, you ask the commissioner for their discretion. Or you go for one of the five exclusions. You make it a company-to-company -company loan, or you find that the loan has already been recognized as assessable income. Or maybe you are a finance house and make it business as usual. Or it is a loan, a liquidator made to the shareholder. And the final exclusion is loans as part of an employee share scheme. If you can find one of these five fixes or five exclusions, your Division 7A problem is no longer a problem. In the next episode, episode 150, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will go back to UPEs between trusts and corporate beneficiaries and discuss why this can be a Division 7A issue. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.